The Sparks Museum podcast is made possible by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast is just one of many new features of the Sparks Heritage Museum. To learn more, check out our social media channels or our website at www.sparksmuseum.org. Hello, and welcome to the Sparks Museum podcast. I'm your host and the media manager for the Sparks Heritage Museum, Jessica Johnson. On New Year's Day in 1932, the Sparks branch of the Washoe County Library was opened to the public at 814 Victorian Avenue, the current site of the Sparks Heritage Museum. The library was located in what is now the upper gallery of the building, and one can still see today how the room was built with the library in mind, from the exterior stairs leading up to the main doors, to the placement of the windows with just enough space in between to naturally light rows and rows of bookshelves. By summer, the Sparks Museum reported record high circulation rates of 6,000 books per month during the often slow, hottest months of the year. In 1965, the building was fully converted to the Justice Court, with the library moving to its current location near Audie Boulevard. But on Friday, October 21st, the Sparks Museum will see the official opening to the public of the Sparks Museum Research Center, which is Nevada's newest library and will serve as an homage to the original that could once be found inside the building. Today on the podcast, I sit down with Patricia Caparata, a true Renaissance woman in every sense of the word. She has been a lawyer, served on the Nevada Assembly, is a lover of history, and has expressed this through her time as a researcher, journalist, and author, and was the first woman to be elected as Nevada State Treasurer. Patty talks with me about her personal connection to the city of Sparks, especially regarding the article she wrote on local events for the Reno Gazette, her fascinating career, and her passion for research in anticipation of the opening day event of the Sparks Museum Research Center, which she has been an avid supporter of. Please welcome to the podcast, Patty Caparata. Patty, thank you so much for being here on the Sparks Museum podcast today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. (laughs) So I'm going to start off the way that I introduce all our guests by asking what your personal connection to the city of Sparks is. Uh, Well, I grew up in Reno, Mm -hmm. which means I didn't have much of a connection to Sparks. (laughs) (laughs) So so I grew up in the 1950s, and uh, Reno had 50,000 people in it. Sparks had like 3,000, and, uh, you know, they're right next to each other. You can't tell the difference unless you know where the lines are. But um, growing up, I I remember one of the things, and I can't remember the name of the place, but there used to be at the Y... Uh, which is now covered by uh, Interstate 80. Mm. But there was a restaurant. I think it was a drive-in, but I know we went inside. You know, they had those jute boxes on the tables where you put in your dime or quarter or whatever, and you could listen. And I remember eating a lot of banana splits there. I don't think I've had one since, (laughs) but that that was the go-to place. So a lot of the Reno kids, it was the why, it was kind of, close to Sparks, may have been in Sparks, but uh, so there was that. And then, of course, Sparks Nugget, everybody came to all the entertainment there, um, all of that. And I have written a couple of articles for the Reno newspaper, and I did go back to look to see if I'd written, I knew I'd written some on Sparks, and I, I did write three. And one of them, I 
remember growing up, I was in high school when this happened, and I didn't personally see it, but there was so much publicity. There was a flagpole sitter uh, that was brought in uh, by the Nugget. It was a publicity stunt, you know, very <laughs> much like, you know, what John Estraga did over the years. Sure. And this was back when Dick Graves, I still, I think, still owned the place. But it was in the 1950s, and that was a big fad across the country. And there was this professional flagpole sitter who came to Sparks, sat up on the uh, platform. It was seven by seven, if I re- recall properly. And he had he had a television, he had a phone, uh, you know, and of course a lot of publicity. And he wanted to break his record, which was just under 200 days. Can you imagine 200 days? Oh. So anyway, he broke his record. He stayed up there for 204 days. And uh, his nickname was Happy Harry. And they would throw a phone up to him and he'd talk and blah, 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 blah. So I think, uh, I can't remember how he got forklift up or anyway, up to the platform. And then he did get a helicopter ride down when his 200 days were done. But I, he started in the summertime and went all the way till February and, um, you know, when he went up, he was clean shaven and, uh, you know, had a haircut. And, of course, when he came down, he had long hair and a beard. And uh, the story, I just reread my story to remember all of this. And he, he had a daughter who was born while he was up there. Uh, <laughs> and he said, you know, it's not the glory, it's the money. <laughs> which is like, that's why he was doing it, which is like pretty funny. But to follow up on that... When I wrote this story, I just happened to be in the nugget and ran in to John Esquaga. And I said, oh, do you remember the flagpole sitter? And this is like, we're talking 2000-something, right? Yeah. And this happened in 1955. So it was like, uh, and he said, yes, you come with me. And he took me in the elevator to the offices, up to his office, goes to the credenza and he pulls out a drawer and he tells me the guy's name and he's got the belt buckle that the guy was awarded as part of his demonstration of being up there and apparently he'd hawked it or something and John bought it back. <laughs> so it was like, it was just this funny connection for know like 40 years 50 years before and john was like right on it he knew exactly who it was so uh anyway that that was that was one connection and that was when i was in high school and i vividly remember it was front page story uh, you know for months and of course that's what john esquaga wanted so that was of course that's been a big focal point in uh Sparks for a long wow. time. So then, let me see. The other articles I wrote, I have to think. Well, I wrote one on the library, which just happens to be the museum building yes. now. And <clears throat> my connection to that was I actually was when I was in it when it was a library. Uh, and it's a it's a beautiful old brick building. It was designed by uh, Fred the Longchamps, was one of our famous architects in Nevada. And he had an interesting style because he would take different styles and put the ele- different elements into a building. So you can't say it was a classic, uh, you know, Spanish or something. It was, he, he just took different elements and made 
very unique looking buildings. And I remember being in it as a as a, a kid, probably in high school when it was a library, because I remember the stacks of books and all of that upstairs. Um, and just staying on libraries. One of my most favorite places in the whole world are libraries. And when I was in second grade, I got my first library card. And it was like, it, it meant a lot to me because we didn't have a lot of money. And I could go to the library and I could get four or five books and I could take them home and I could read them and I could go back and take, take get four or five more. It, it, and I still have my Washoe County Library card, not from 1950, but I would have gotten it. But I have one from the 1970s. They don't, it doesn't even, it's a cardboard card. It doesn't oh, even wow. look like, I'm sure they're plastic now or sure. whatever. <laughs> so anyway, so libraries are one of my favorite places. Um, so anyway, so I remember going into the library uh, at least once and then uh, the downstairs was the justice court, and I'm a lawyer, so I I don't I I can't remember that I had a client in justice court, but I do remember going in, and Lorma Volk was the uh, JP in those days, and I was struck by how low the ceiling was in the courtroom because I think they had raised up a platform for the bench, so the judge was higher, usually is always higher than everybody else in the courtroom. And I just remember thinking, wow, that's a little low ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so so I've been in the building <laughs> uh, back before it was a museum, and of course now I've been in it since it's been a museum. What what year did you write that article? Uh, let's see. I wrote that in 2012. And I'm going to give you co- I'm going to give you these oh, copies. Oh, that'd be so, amazing. You yes. know, it would I put them in your archives or whatever you well, want to do. That that's so significant cuz already even though that article's already a decade old, <laughs> I think that it's really the time in which um, we started paying attention to a lot of these buildings cuz we've seen for example, the Immaculate Conception Church just down the road was a Delongchamps building yes. that we've lost. Yes. So it's important that we're we, you, you're kind of leading the movement, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. But that was a beautiful old church. Yeah. I, I was in that many times because I'm Catholic. So mm-hmm. I uh, was in that many times. And the uh, Sons of Italy used to have their dinners, uh, not in the church, but in the parish hall or whatever they called it those days. So I attended a sure. lot of those. So anyway, Longchamps has done a, a lot of wonderful buildings <laughs> in Nevada. But <laughs> so. speaking on behalf of the museum, I appreciate your uh, your coverage on that because I feel like it's an important history to share. It is absolutely, and I might even have a real a copy of the actually as it was printed in the newspaper. But this was my draft, so I <laughs> I wanted to do that. And the other the other thing. Um, that I wrote on Sparks was on the parks. Oh, wow. And um, I think what I started, I remember Deer Park as a kid. I went to the swimming pool, and, you know, it was a big sort of, not the center of town, but it was pretty prominent. Still is there. Yeah. Isn't it? I haven't yeah. been down that street in a while. but. Um, but what interested me was I went to a display that the Parks Department did, and it's the Washoe County Parks, and Sparks is part of that, but uh, 
on the parks, I don't know, a few years ago. When did I write this? I wrote this in 2012. Anyway, um, my and there was this thing about these uh, this park for all abilities. And that really attracted me because uh, my late husband was uh, had Parkinson's uh, and uh, from his exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam. And so mm. in his later years, the last four or five, he was in a wheelchair. So I became very aware about access for disabilities. And there was this wonderful park in Sparks, Para is the park that is part of it is all, I think they call it all abilities. Um, so it's like the wheelchairs can go on the merry-go-rounds. And I mean, it, it it's fabulous. So of course I hadn't been there. So I went out and looked at that and it was like, it was, it was just striking that, you know, it didn't matter what your ability, physical ability was, you could participate in particularly for kids. So uh, I kind of, did the research on that, and then it's like, well, I better talk about all the other parks, and I think Deer Park was the first one. So, so I have an article about that, and I and I did as a kid went to the swimming pool there. Not a lot, because you know there weren't a lot of swimming pools back in the fifties. We had one at Ottawa Park and uh, Deer Park. I think the pool was added later on after the park was built. So, um, anyway, so those are my little uh, stories about Sparks and my personal. Connection. So I'm going to leave you these, and <laughs> oh, uh, thank you. You, know, you can put those in your uh, archives or whatever. Absolutely, you're doing. yeah. We're always looking for things to add to our archives. But I'm interested, especially since your family has had such a history here in Northern Nevada, and you say, you know, I'm I was a Reno girl growing up here. <laughs> growing up, what was the perception of Sparks? Was it your neighbor, or was it just kind of? Reno slash Sparks, they're the one and the same. Yeah. Oh, no, they weren't one and the same. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't think they're one and the same either today. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're from Sparks, you are from Sparks. You are not from Reno. That's right? for sure. <laughs> That's right. Um, so um, I uh, went to Minogue. So uh, we played ball games with Sparks, but I don't think we were in the same division. And I was trying to think of... Uh, exactly how that worked but you know you did play schools out of your division and we were so much smaller than this than uh, sparks high school so uh probably uh not and like i said you know you were over there from reno uh <laughs> and uh you know, so so that's kind of and you know that was a when i was growing up it was in the 50s and 60s so uh, that was kind of the relationship and i i think probably it was a two-way street I would like to hear a little bit more about your own background. You kind of teased that for us in the beginning. <laughs> of course, your your past as a researcher, but also your work as a lawyer. Can you give us a little bit about your life? Sure. So I grew up in Reno, as I've said, went to Minogue, uh, graduate, uh, graduated in college after, th after three years I got married and then graduated from college. And I graduated from Lewis and Clark College in uh, Portland, Oregon, because my husband was in medical school up there and we didn't have a medical school so you always had to go out of state so anyway we were up there two of our kids were born there and then uh my degree is in elementary education i first started in early childhood education which is preschool and then when i transferred schools they didn't have that degree so i 
transfer to elementary school education. So in theory, I could teach anywhere from first grade to uh, uh, eighth grade, I think it was in those <laughs> days. So um, I actually taught school in Portland for a year while my husband finished his degree. And we were in San Francisco for six years. And then our son was born there. And it was like, uh, there's either a glut of teachers or there's not enough teachers. Mm -hmm. And when I got to San Francisco, there was a glut of teachers. And so I couldn't get a teaching job. And so I started, I applied and taught speed reading for the six years. And then um, he went to Vietnam and I came home for a year. And then uh, when he came back, we spent a year in Alabama. And then we came home and uh, I started, well, he opened his medical practice. He's a surgeon. So I manage the the business part of the practice. I don't know anything about medicine, uh, <laughs> so that's not. But that was his thing. So we divided the labor, and uh, that worked out very well. And then I worked for my mother, Barbara Vikanovich. You may have heard of her. She was our congresswoman at the time. She was not. She had a travel agency, and so I went and kept her books. Oh, um, wow! So that was uh, it. Good experience. Learned a lot about bookkeeping and accounting. So I was thinking about running for the city council, and my mother said, oh, no, you don't want to do that. All they do is talk about uh, zoning and land use planning. You don't want to do that. You know, you ought to run for state treasurer. So why not? So I ran for state treasurer, and I uh, ran against – I filed against an incumbent, Mike Marabelli, wonderful guy. He was a former county commissioner from here. The Democrats could see he was going to lose to me, so they recruited uh, Stan Colton, who was the uh, registrar of voters in Clark County. And, of course, Stan beat him, beat me. Uh, and I got uh, 42 44% of the vote. It was the most any woman had ever gotten on a statewide race. Wow. And I had no idea that no woman had ever been elected to any constitutional office in Nevada, much less state treasurer. So two years later, I uh, the Republican Party asked me to run for uh, the assembly, and my assembly seat was open, so I was elected, but I won my primary by one vote. Oh, wow. Anyway, I won by the one vote. I served for the, uh, the term, which is the two years, uh, really enjoyed it, and then Stan Colton really didn't like being state treasurer. He decided he was going to run for governor, so... I ran for state treasurer again, and that's when I found out that no woman had ever been elected to anything statewide, so uh, the constitutional offices. And so I, uh, I was elected. Uh, it was a close race statewide. I won by about one vote per precinct, per precinct in the state, so I won about 3,000 votes statewide. So, And my mother, by then, she ran in the same year, 1982, and we both got elected. She did a lot better than I did, I'll <laughs> say. But anyway, she went off to Washington, and I went to Carson City, and I served the, the one, one term, and I really, I really liked it. Uh, but there's not a lot of challenge to it. And there's the state treasurer today does a lot more things than I did, or by law. You know, I had, I banked the money, I collected the money, banked the money, invested the money. And that, that was kind of about it. There were a couple small uh, programs that we had. We um, had the local government investment pool. So 
if like Sparks had money and they wanted to invest it, if they gave it to the state treasurer to invest, they got a better rate. Mm. So, but that that was kind of it. There's the state treasurer does a lot more programs now over the years that that have been added to that office. So at the end of four years, I uh, I didn't like what the governor was doing, so I ran for governor and I lost, which was you know no surprise. Very popular <laughs> guy, uh, Dick Bryan. He and I are really good friends <laughs> now. <laughs> and um, now what do I do? My state treasurer terms up. I didn't get elected. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, which is what most politicians do. They go back to practicing law if they lose a race. So that's like, so one of my kids said, well, why don't you go to law school? <laughs> well, okay. So I said to my husband, can I go to law school? And he said, well, if my life doesn't change. And of course, we didn't have a law school, right? Sure. So I had to apply out of state. And I got accepted to two schools, but I went to the one in Southern California, uh, Southwestern School of Law. It was brutal, but I managed to graduate. And then <clears throat> the next step is you have to take the state bar, wherever state you're in, right, to become a lawyer, because you're not a lawyer, even if you have a law degree. Yeah. So. so I studied for the bar and passed the bar, yay. And then I started... Um, the best job you can get when you get out of law school is to clerk for a district court judge or a trial court judge because they see everything. Uh, so it's a broad experience. So I clerked for Dave Gamble in uh, Minden, Gardnerville, Douglas County, uh, and that's a year term, and I did that. And uh, then when the term was up, because it's you agree to stay for the year, and then the next graduates come and pass the bar, and they come to uh, take a clerkship. And so I opened a practice in Reno, and I did mostly wills, trusts, and probate. Um, but I really wanted to be a prosecutor when I went to law school to uh, put not bad people, but people who do bad things sure. away in jail or prison. And so they advertised, I think, uh, for a deputy district attorney in Eureka County, which is 200, about 250 miles east on uh, Highway 50. And so I went, it's the loneliest road in America, or <laughs> loneliest road in Nevada. Anyway. It, that's its reputation, and so they've embraced it, and I mean, make a big deal about it, right? But anyway, I went out, and uh, the DA wanted a uh, assistant to do the criminal law stuff. He really didn't want to do that. He liked doing the civil, and district attorneys, not in every state, but in Nevada, do both. You have a civil division, and you have a, a criminal division, and after two weeks, uh, my boss came in and said, I'm going on vacation. I'll see you. I was like, well, uh, now what? <laughs> so I um, learned quickly I uh, by, the, <laughs> by the seat of my pants how to do this stuff. So and then I had a child molester case, which uh, the alleged molester was from a prominent family in Eureka. So I <coughs> prosecuted uh Filed charges against the guy. He, of course, he was arrested and he was booked. And within hours, the victim's family is in my office saying, "What is he doing out on the streets?" And I was like, 
I don't know, what does he do he got on the streets? And my boss had uh, told the sheriff to let him out. Oh, wow. There was a lot of political pressure put on my boss. Um, and he was threatened if he did anything on the case, they would recall him. On and on and on. And so I stayed, and he promised that he wouldn't touch the case. He'd, he'd let me do it. And then, of course, as we're going through us, I said to my boss, you know, you're the boss. You get to call the shots here. I don't like what you're doing, but I can't do anything about it. So I'm going to quit while we're still speaking to one another. <laughs> <laughs> so, so within Hours, I got a call from the district attorney in White Pine County, which is Ely, which is <laughs> Pioch is the county seat. It's 450 miles from Reno. So that, that this is, you know, in rural Nevada, there are so many connections. People just don't. Literally, within hours of my resignation, I get this call from the <laughs> district attorney. And it was like, and he said, you know, I haven't had a vacation in three weeks. Patty, would you come over here and and uh, fill in for me? Because he was the only one. It's a part-time job. And so uh, we met, ne we agreed to meet Neely, had coffee, talked, and I, I agreed. I mean, three weeks, how bad could that be? Right. And so when I went over there, I did keep this job blaster case, and we did complete it, and the guy did go to prison. Uh, so... I did the three weeks, and uh, some of the funny stuff. I mean, I got over there in the middle of deer season, and there's a huge deer area over there, and you get your deer tags for by area, right? Yep. And every year in October, when deer season opened, fish and game was what wildlife, whatever it was. I think it was fish and game called in those days. It's now wildlife, but they put up a roadblock. Every year, uh, like on a Saturday or Sunday, between Pioch and Las Vegas, because Pioch is like, uh, I don't know, 100 and some odd miles north of Las Vegas, they put up roadblocks, and, you know, they'd stop these cars. Well, you can't hide a deer very well, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you get this carcass, right? And, I mean, so I got there, and there were like 28 deer cases, <laughs> To prosecute. Oh. And they're all felonies. They are not yeah. misdemeanors. These are big things. And it's like, so I got to be an expert on uh, two cases. <laughs> so at the end of the three weeks, uh, Leo Wadsworth, the DA, comes back and he says, you know, I'm uh, tired of this job. I'm retiring. You can have it. So anyway, I talked to uh, the county commissioners had you can't. You just don't walk in and say, "I'm going to be the DA," right? So the county commissioners uh, appointed me, and uh, and that was in February. So I I did that until December, and I flew to Las Vegas every Sunday or Monday. Uh, they gave me transportation. They gave me. The first time, a used uh, patrol vehicle that had over 200,000 miles on it. And it lasted a while, but it uh, broke down and couldn't be repaired. So they gave me a pickup truck with a camper shell on the back. And it turned out this sheriff kept saying to me, when are you going to give me my truck back? And it's like, well, when the commissioners give me another car, I'll, you know, 
Well, it turns out they used the, the truck to transport the bodies from <laughs> Pioch to the morgue in, oh. in Las Vegas, <laughs> right? Because we didn't have a morgue. Anyway, I was like, uh, my son said, you know, you really didn't negotiate that deal very well. <laughs> I was like, yeah, well, it worked. So anyway, I would <coughs> fly to Las Vegas and then drive north uh, to Beoch. And I think it's 90 miles. I can't remember now, but I think it's about 90 miles. And I did that. I'd go down. I think I think I went on Mondays and then I came back on Friday, something like that, because I was there three. And it was a, it was a part-time job. Wow. Um, and I always had a practice, a law practice in Reno because these were all part-time jobs, yeah. right? And so I had clients here. And then I uh, went out to Battle Mountain, which is Lander County on Interstate 80, 230 miles from here, uh, to represent a client in court. And he wanted to change his name legally because he wanted to run uh, for office. And the only way you run for office is under your no name, uh, you know nickname, and mm. he, his nickname was Rhinestone Cowboy. Oh. And I don't, I don't know if you were old enough to remember <laughs> I Rhinestone. Do. I <laughs> okay. do. Well, anyway, I knew Rhinestone from, from just being around all these things, right? And so he came in. He wanted to, he wanted to run for governor, and so he wanted to run as Rhinestone Cowboy, which they wouldn't let him do. So. I went out to court because that's where he lived in Lander County and uh, to change his name, which is a legal process. And when I went out there, I when I got to town, I went to the newspaper because I had to file some or get a copy of a publication that we were changing his name or whatever. And the lady says to me, I've never seen her before, um, why don't you run for DA here? I was like, uh, well, I had thought about it. Um, I mean, I've never even laid eyes on this woman. <laughs> so I go into court, get the name change, right? Uh, Rhinestone's happy. We're parting our ways. I'm walking out to my car in the parking lot, and people start stopping me saying, would you run for DA here? And these are people I've never even seen before. And so it's like, uh, well, uh, gee, if people want me to do this, so... I went full speed, uh, in it to win it, as I said, and I did everything I could. And there were, uh, there was a primary, and I won the primary, and then there was a general election, and I got elected, and actually got the highest percentage of any vote I'd ever gotten in in uh, all of my races. So it was uh, quite a feat, and I was very happy about it. So uh, one of the issues was, well, where do you live, and uh, said, well, if I'm elected, I'll buy a house. And they said, and will you live in it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they've talked to politicians before. Right? <laughs> so, so I said, yes. And so, and I really did. So we, I bought a house. My husband was a surgeon. He was here. I mean, he couldn't move and uh, couldn't have made a living in Battle Mountain. So anyway, I bought a house there. Uh, I drove out on Sunday afternoons uh, spent the night, spent Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and about 4 o'clock on Friday, I got in my car and drove home. And Battle Mountain is kind of the heart of chucker hunting country, so I would pass my husband. <laughs> interstate. Oh. He was going out with his buddies to stay at our place <laughs> to go <laughs> chucker hunting, and I got, that didn't happen all, all the time, but during chucker season, it was, it was a big day. So anyway, I did that. 
And I fully intended to fill out my term. And my mother calls me in 1986, which was two years later, and says, I'm retiring from Congress. You should run. <laughs> and I was like, uh, it wasn't really, again, I wasn't really thinking about it. Uh, and, of course, I couldn't be the DA and run for statewide office, sure. basically. So, I mean, it, it wouldn't have been fair to the people in Lander County because mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't have been able to do the job. And so I did have a deputy uh, there because that was a full-time job. But I was like, no. So I resigned. Uh, and they were not very happy with me. Uh, so, but that, and again, it wasn't the plan. It just, that's how it worked out. And my stepfather, George Vukanovich was, uh, he had leukemia and it was getting, so he couldn't travel with her mm. going back and forth, uh, to Washington every week. So, uh, she needed to retire. And, um, so I, uh, ran and lost the primary and, um, then it's like, okay, then what? Uh, back to practicing law, <laughs> you know, like all those other politicians. And then ultimately along the way, <coughs> I did some other state jobs. I uh, was a part-time hearing officer for state personnel, which is, you know, okay, somebody got fired, disciplined, something, mm -hmm. and uh, they're objecting to it, and they want a hearing, and so... I did those hearings and, you know, did the bosses file the law or the rules and the regulations and do all everything properly or did this person really deserve whatever happened to them? Sometimes it was a lateral transfer. Sometimes it was a demotion. Sometimes it was being fired. So I did that for a couple of years. That was a contract job. And then I was appointed. And again, I'm still practicing law along the way here. Um then I was appointed the ED of the Nevada Ethics Commission, and uh, that was a full-time job. I was in Carson City, and uh, there is a commission, and they make the decisions about whether you were ethical or not in your conduct, and that, that was uh, very interesting. And like the state treasurer's office, it was running a state agency, both very small, but you know, state agencies. And then my husband's Parkinson's really kicked in. And so I resigned from that. And somewhere along the line, when Governor Sandoval was the governor, Brian Sandoval, uh, he appointed me to two commissions. One was the Sesquicentennial Commission, mm. which is our 150th uh, anniversary. And there were different people from uh, different counties, but also different backgrounds. And I was kind of the historian where it's like, well, you're relying on me. <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> I know all that much. But anyway, uh, so I did that. And, then, of course, that was a short-term, you know, year, sure. year and a half. But that was really uh, fun. We did some really great things. Uh, you know, we redid the museum in the uh, Capitol. I don't know if you've ever been upstairs. Yeah. It's wonderful, and that was just basically kind of an open. It it was the former assembly chambers when the assembly met in the Capitol, mm -hmm. uh, and it really was it didn't have a lot going for it. And really, I I was very pleased with that. And then the women's commission, 
uh, did the walkway to the Gwyn room behind the Octagon building in the back with a lot of displays of the women in history, which was just perfect. Oh, yes. You know, so, and we redid all the statewide markers, you know, the historic markers mm-hmm. that you see around. We did that. We, we did some other things. So uh, that was really fun. And then he appointed me to, I was, uh, Governor Gibbons appointed me to um, the <laughs> Equal Rights Commission. And somehow the paperwork never got sent or whatever. And so I ran into there to uh, the governor's lawyer. Actually, she'd worked for me in the Ethics Commission. And in the Ethics Commission. And she said, well, how's the Equal Rights Commission going? I said, I don't know. They've never contacted me. And, she, and this was like six months later. And she goes, what? So, of course, immediately the <laughs> ED calls and very apologetic. And so... I chaired the uh, Equal Rights Commission for a couple of years. So. Wow. So throughout this history, this <laughs> incredible <laughs> career, you started as an educator. You move <laughs> on to treasurer and politician and lawyer, back to politician. <laughs> right. <laughs> then ultimately to researcher. So you have written books. Yes. Uh, can you tell us about your books that you've written? <laughs> Well, I have written nine books. Wow. <laughs> and the first one was um, the Goldfield Hotel, which I was the district attorney after Lander County. I Not right away. I got appointed in Esmeralda County, which is Goldfield, mm-hmm. south of Tonopah, if people don't know. Uh, they had a district attorney get recalled, resigned, something. So there was a short, there was a couple years left in the term. And you got county's got to have a lawyer. So oh, sure. they have to, you know, so. So anyway, I applied and I got a, I got elected. And again, part-time job. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a couple years. Um, but in the process, the county owned the Goldfield Hotel for back taxes. Have you been to Goldfield? Yeah. Okay, the big yeah. brick building. And you just come out of nowhere, and here's this gorgeous old building, right? <laughs> and it's like, what's the story to that? So anyway, we, 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 the county, had the building for back taxes. And so I was doing research on it, like the title research and, you know, anything about the building that we could use to when we auctioned it off, we would be able to say, well, I collected a banker's box of material, and then I got too busy prosecuting people. <laughs> so I never finished it. So when my term ended, I took the banker's box of material home, and I wrote the first book that I wrote, and that was The Goldfield Hotel. And so and it's, it's, a, short, it's a short book, 50, 60 pages. Anyway, it's, it's not. But, but that was my first uh, attempt and I self-published it, uh, and it's actually my bestseller, wow. except for my Christmas in Nevada book, I think. Mm. But it's a it's a mining camp hotel. It's a ghost hotel. It's just it it's got a lot of things that make it very attractive to people who are interested in mostly mining uh, in Nevada and the ghost towns and that, that kind of thing. Sure. Not that Goldfield's a ghost town, but it's practically a ghost. I mean, the only people who live there work for the government. So My most recent book was Christmas in Nevada, or is Christmas in Nevada, and that's published by the University of Nevada Press. And they 
contacted me and asked me to write the book about how Nevada celebrates the holiday. And most all the states have Christmas in New York, Christmas in Texas. You know, they all have these books. And they, the University Press, had also published my mother's memoirs, Barbara F. Dukanovich, from Nevada to Congress and back again. And wow. mother and I did that. Uh, back in 2004, I think. So, it was a five-year process. It was quite lengthy. I interviewed her every week uh, for an hour and then wrote it down, went back and said, what do you think? And the first time I went back, she said, well, I think it's awful. Oh. I was like, <laughs> okay, I will rewrite it. Appreciate anyway. the honesty. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was her book. So anyway, so they had published her book. So I, I did have a relationship with the press, and they were aware of my other books that I had written. And I was writing a column, I think, at the time for the uh, Reno Gazette Journal. So uh, they were familiar with my writing and thought that I – make the right person to write the book. So I did, and I loved And I did that very quickly because they wanted it out in the sesquicentennial year. Oh, wow. And so uh, I did it within the year. And, of course, they expedited their process. Uh, when we did my mother's book, it took them two years to process everything that we'd done. So, you know, it's different. They, they have committees, all this. But they really wanted the book, so uh, they expedited that. And it, there's a story from every county, all 17 counties. Uh, you know, most of them are Reno and Las Vegas, of course. But And they start in 18, the 1850s and go to 2010. So wow. uh, it's, it's a Nevada history. And then I interviewed a lot of a lot, but quite a few Nevadans on how they celebrated the holiday and what they did. And, you know, like I did Dick Bryan, Governor Dick Bryan, uh, Governor Bob Liss, one Democrat, one Republican, other elected officials, and just everyday Nevadans, if they had an interesting story. And I, and I solicited them, you know, did you have a unique, you know, something uh, that you did growing up? And so, or does your family do now? And so, I, I did all that. I included a lot of the, the different ethnic groups. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's all of the Native American, Basque, uh, mm. you know, all the De Danes. There, there, there were a lot of Danes in Nevada, which I don't ever usually think of, but they were all the agricultural communities wow. like uh, Minden Gardnerville, Eureka. There's a lot. So anyway, so that was just a fun book. And they were, I've liked them all, but that was really kind of fun. And then to what I'm doing now, I uh, just finished the manuscript on the Levy Mansion, which is where Sundance Bookstore is oh, in yes. California. And I'm waiting for Christine to approve the manuscript and then we'll go from there. <laughs> but that was, uh, the Levy's were very prominent um, retailers, merchants uh, in early Nevada in the 1880s, 90s. And, of course, when the Depression came, they uh, had they went bankrupt or, sure. you know, it was, a, it was a tough time. But anyway, a beautiful old house that's been restored, all of that. So I've finished that. I'm just waiting to get it approved. And then the thing I'm working on now are my memoirs. Uh, as the district attorney, not, not my whole life story, but just concentrating on, uh, you know, Eureka, Lander, Lincoln, Esmeralda counties, and my uh, time during that. And I'm having a great time. I Actually, I started keeping a journal, which 
when I went out to Lincoln County, and I don't maybe because I had nothing else to do at night, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, uh, so so I started keeping a daily journal. And they say if you are a writer, you should one read every day yeah. and write every day, even if it's just notes in your journal. And so I started keeping a journal then, and. Um, so that's been very helpful on my memory because, I, you know, it's the rich details that oh, you don't yeah. really, you have these vague ideas or, you know, it's like saying, well, there was that restaurant at the Y. I can't remember the name of it, right? <laughs> but if I'd had a journal, I would have been able to tell you the name of it. So I uh, fortunately did that. And I am, uh, I've written four or five chapters. I haven't begun on Esmeralda and Goldfield, but... Uh, the others I have beginning drafts, and then I go back and revise to put them to relate them to one another. Because if I say this about one county, then I want to be able to say whatever it is that made the other county different or whatever. So that's uh, what I've been doing. That's amazing. Yeah, it's well, fun. And especially thinking about, you know, in the days preceding computers, I feel like people today often take for granted of everything's just going to be stored in this device right here. And written <laughs> logs are what are being pre- kept and preserved in these <laughs> historical institutions. Yeah. And I, we had Frank Mullen on the podcast, oh. and he spoke at a great length about the importance of keeping physical records in instead of digital, because physical records, physical newspaper, print media, and the importance of books. And so kind of thinking about that idea, I think that this is a perfect complement to that conversation, because as you mentioned, the Sparks Museum is building our research center, which is inspired by the original 1931 library. And even though we're going to have the location of that research center where the Justice Court was instead of up in the library, that's our event space, you have been such a fervent supporter of that. So I'd love to know, just in your opinion, what is the importance of research centers today? What is the relevance still? Why why do we still need them? Oh, we really need them. And, you know, the digital stuff, it disappears. Yeah. You know, somebody's hard drive crashes. You have a website that has all this information on it, and somebody decides it's worthless or they don't want it, They want, and they take it down, and it's like, if I had known you were going to do that, I would have printed it out. So I had a copy, right? So yes, I spend time in research libraries because, you know, the books, the newspapers, the journals, the articles, it's the sort. And I don't know what's going to happen to us when we no longer have newspapers because that's our historic record, certainly in Nevada. Mm -hmm. I don't know about other states, but I'm sure it's sort of true. But here... That was it. You know, every town had their own newspaper, even if it was for a year or two. But you had the snapshot of, of wow. that. And, you know, so like I said, I've done research at uh, <laughs> the Sparks Museum. And uh, it's important because it it's going to disappear. It goes up in the cloud or whatever. And uh, the digital just doesn't last. And then you have... Things we did, my mother had things that, uh, like radio announcements and stuff or ads. Well, they're on a format you can't even use anymore, right? Absolutely. You know, those big floppy yeah. disks or hard, di- you know, they don't even exist. So you can't even 
play it. There's no way to access it. So, Well, we're so looking forward to being able to open up the research center in October. And we are so, and we hope that you'll come to that opening. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and just to finish, because okay. this has been such a great conversation and what a life you've led. Um, you kind of have addressed this before, but I wanted to start with our first big three question. What sparks you about Sparks? What do you think makes it an interesting place to live or visit or work? You know, it's changed so much. And in recent years, I mean, when I come into Sparks, it's like, wow, look at all these big, tall buildings. And and the downtown, if you call it downtown, I think it's downtown, right? Yeah. Uh, but the Nugget area and all the uh, malls and open space, I, you know, it's fabulous. So, uh, and then it's unique in its history because it came from the railroad history, which is, you know, Reno had a railroad, but not not same railroad, but <laughs> same railroad, but but not the same. I mean, yours is so rich for the trains and everything that. Um, you know, happened here. And then uh, Sparks being named after John Sparks, a governor. There are not a lot of towns in Nevada that are named after any of our politicians. Yeah. And John Sparks uh, was certainly, you know, instrumental in all that. So I think that's uh, what I think about Sparks. And I think it just, you know, all the new building and everything, it's just, it's it's great. Yeah. Um, and then you shared with us uh, so generously your amazing stories about the uh, flagpole center <laughs> and the accessibility in the parks and so much else. But is there any last remaining favorite story or even a moment from Sparks's history, either a historical moment that you remember or even just a personal memory of enjoying a local event here? You know, the Glendale School? Yes. Isn't that downtown? It's right uh, across the street from the right. museum, yes. So... Uh, when I went to Monogue out on the river, the Glendale School was across the river, the oh, Truckee yeah. River, and we I didn't have a classmate, but there were pre people at Monogue, I think in one of the younger uh, classes behind me that had actually gone to the Glendale School. And then when I was on the Sesquicentennial Commission, I, for so, I came out for some event, and I don't remember now what it was, but in those memory, you got to have the journal, right? You got to have the <laughs> journal. So I, I actually went into, and it must have been a sesquicentennial event, but I, it was right by the Glendale School, and I went in and visited it, and it was just like, uh, wow. And I've, re I've read about it, but uh, that's certainly another historic uh, thing. It wasn't part of downtown. Yeah at all but uh, it is now it certainly <laughs> is yeah wow that's amazing yeah. <laughs> i would have loved to have seen it the way it was before but we are so grateful that it has been preserved as well as it has absolutely absolutely yes. and lastly since we are a museum with our research center and our archives we're always looking for new items to preserve or new stories to tell because we think that every single contribution from the Truckee Meadows area is worth telling. It's a story worth telling. Um, so what is one thing that you own or that you know about that you would think is museum worthy or might belong in the Sparks Museum? I, I believe the State Museum has a very unique chair that was John Sparks and it's made with antlers. Oh, and that's stuff. the Nevada Historical Society has that. 
Oh, okay. Somebody yeah. had. Okay. So, I mean, I've seen it or oh, I've seen pictures have. of it. Maybe I've just seen pictures of it. Anyway, if I could give you something, which I don't have, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think something unique like that would be, you know, a connection to John Sparks, I guess, because of the name of the, the town, yes. right? Uh, you know, I know you have a lot of train memorabilia and history and all of that, but just another taking another part of uh, unique to your history, and that would certainly be uh, something. So I don't certainly. know who has it and <laughs> probably isn't willing to give it up. <laughs> but well, you might have a picture yeah. or get a picture uh, of him or... Uh, of the chair, or <laughs> you know, you could get a big. Uh, I'm sure because he's a governor, they mer- there is a a painting of him in the state capitol. Wow. Good to go take a picture of that and put it on display. If you don't have a picture of John Sparks, well, maybe there's that. That's an all call to the powers that be that own these items. Maybe <laughs> we can set up some sort of loan oh, or a traveling talk. exhibit. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Patty, I like this idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, it's just, you know, you do the trains, which is great. Yeah. And I mean, there's a whole audience for trains. Yes. My husband was a big train fanatic. <laughs> uh, but, you know, some of the John Sparks, it would be interesting to put together a yeah. traveling exhibit or something like that. Well, especially, you've been all up and down the state, <laughs> so you really have the appreciation for the Nevada history as a whole. Yeah, right. And we so appreciate you sharing that history, your personal history, your history with the state and every single county. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been around, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so yeah, much once you. again for being such a supporter of the Sparks Museum Research Center. We can't wait to get that open and off the ground. And thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much for the invitation. I really enjoy it. You know, what's what's not to like to get to talk about yourself? Right. (laughs) She said very humbly. (laughs) The Sparks Museum podcast is funded in part by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It is produced and recorded at the podcast recording studio at Sparks' own Antspace Coworking Entrepreneurial Hub, a place for entrepreneurs made by entrepreneurs. We really want to get the word out about our brand new audio series, so please spread the word about our new podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and share this episode. Do you have a favorite story of Sparks that you want to hear on the podcast? Email info at sparksmuseum.org to share any recommendations. We would love to hear from you. We also invite you to visit the Sparks Heritage Museum on 814 Victorian Avenue. The museum is open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Please come visit and be a part of our ongoing efforts to tell the Sparks story. We'll see you next time.